You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. My friends, my friends. Another edition of The Renegade Economist. It's been so long, just so long since I've had an in-depth look at what's happening to Australia's housing prices. Everyone's favourite sport. Let's get into it because for a long time we've been warning of these dangers of excess property speculation pushing prices beyond what people's wages can justify from that curtailing our freedoms and uh, that's why we're renegade economists we talk about the hard stuff and housing reform is the most difficult because uh, it's always basically rigged to ensure that two-thirds of the population own land own real estate and uh, the unlucky one-third have to keep renting paying more and more and because of the fact we don't have an ethical landlord type movement everyone's in on the game of buying and selling real estate to make easy lightly taxed profits so we're seeing the situation where the property that's being listed on the market has skyrocketed in sydney melbourne and canberra up between 12 to 18 percent over the last year as people try to cash out before the market really crashes and when we look at the market uh, Property prices from their respective peaks have been falling for quite some time, with Darwin down 22.1% since its peak, Perth 13.2%, Sydney 6.2%, Melbourne 44 Adelaide about even minus 0.2%. So yeah, that is uh, quite something because uh, during the GFC, Australian property prices fell around about 6% in real terms. So we're almost at GFC levels in Sydney, Melbourne, and those trends are only about to accelerate because of this extra supply hitting the market. A lot of people are blaming this on the tightening of lending conditions during this Royal Commission into banking. Well, That's part of the game, but really uh, blaming credit all the time is just too easy. Sure, there's been that impressive graph uh, that's come out showing yet again the inverse relationship between the amount of credit lent to small business and the amount of credit lent to housing and how that drastically changed following the so-called world's greatest treasurer, Peter Costello, handing out the 50% capital gains tax in 1999. Well, uh, while small business struggles with low credit, it's been too easy for banks to uh, encourage the growth of land prices. And whilst uh, that credit has reduced with some of the appetite restrictions regarding investor-only loans seeing uh, interest rates there increase by some 75 basis points. Banks uh, also are tightening their lending uh, restrictions on people, on buyers. The basic point is that the market is just well out of whack with the economic fundamentals. 
And the thing is, with housing prices, it's often at the top end of the market where the uh, corrections happen most rapidly. And that uh, is resulting in uh, the higher quartile values dropping by 8.4 and 6.7% in Sydney and Melbourne over the last 12 months. That's because that those higher valued properties are where the greatest speculative intent is focused on. That's where the biggest profits are made. And so there is often a lot more froth we see in the market. I'm also expecting to see that the holiday house market uh, will correct as well. And from that, uh, we'll see people selling at a loss and that flowing through into uh, consumer spending. But nationally, dwelling prices have only dropped 2.7%. So we're still quite some way away to having a national housing crisis. But uh, I wanted to go through some of the key formulas and and graphs that uh, we've discussed and revealed to you over the last 11-odd years. And earlier this year, I had Peter Smith, who you might remember, had that great rocking track that uh, told the story about uh, land reform and our earth rights. Uh, Let's hear a few riffs from Pete Smith's band Vought. Share the rents. You can find that on the show. Drip feeding formula revealed. And here's Pete Smith discussing the role of developers and uh, their push to manufacture scarcity. Developers will always deny that they're land banking. um, And they always blame the planning system for for holding back their ability to deliver homes. The only answer they've got, they, they say, right, we need to build more homes in order to solve the housing crisis. Now you can. That's actually not necessarily true, I don't think. But it's the only answer they've got. But the, their logic should follow them that if they increase the numbers of builds on us on on site, um, if they increase the the the, uh, the tempo of building, then it will reduce prices and make homes more affordable. But that will go against their own profits. Therefore, there's an inbuilt mechanism for them not to simply not to do that. There's a relationship yeah. really between between the, what they call saturation of the housing market so they sort of drip feed the market to avoid price falls the absorption rate that was the word i was looking for mm. um i think one one new one new build for every nine existing homes sold so there's a very fixed ratio there was a there's a report done by Savills um, about that a, a few years ago it was just a, a statistic that where they showed very clearly that although the number of homes sold every year in the uk um, goes through pretty big peaks and troughs the, the the percentage of new builds always tracks very very closely a sort of one to nine ratio in the overall number of sales. 
I'll definitely uh, put this graph in the show notes. Peter emailed me soon after that recording to say, look, you checked the figures. It was actually one home built for every 10 homes sold over 25 years in the UK. That was absolutely mind-blowing for me because you know me, I'm always talking about this manufactured scarcity type uh, agenda of the real estate industry. We saw that through our vacancy study where we revealed that the Real Estate Institute of Victoria was publishing vacancy statistics based on a voluntary survey of their real estate agents. So whenever there were vacancies, there was no real incentive for the agents to report that because that would push up the vacancy rate and make people realise, gee, I've got some market power, maybe I can bid down these rents. Maybe I can offer a lower rent. Well, no, that wasn't the case. So that was a sort of one alarm bell on uh, manufacturing scarcity. Well, the other one, of course, is the ghost auction clearance rate, where we see some 1,200 properties advertised for sale in the run-up to the weekend. Then Saturday night, we get the email from realestate.com.au that shows only 790 properties were uh, auctioned on the weekend and some 400 properties were you know, not even told, uh, had basically disappeared out of the auction statistical process, probably because they got passed in. And late in the week, uh, it's very hush-hush. You find out that those cl- clearance figures were marked down, usually some 4 or 5%. So, yeah, there's a lot to be said that uh, uh, independent sources should be compiling these statistics, not those with a vested interest to make either housing clearance rates or rental vacancy rates appear tighter than they should. One of the other big data pieces that has come through from the UK is another dream graph, and it just quantifies the cumulative amounts of rezoned property that have been unbuilt. So land developers are always... uh, on the case saying, look, there's not enough land. We need more land. We need to build more houses. And that's uh, code for rezone my land so I can make uh, 2 or $3 million with the golden pen tick. Well, having a graph like this one that shows just how much land is out there and uh, uh, sheds some light on the process of drip feeding uh, will help keep developers on their toes providing property to us in a timely manner rather than whinging there's no land and then getting it rezoned and then bragging to their uh, investor clients that they're going to drip feed it over the next 17 years. Uh, That's what you find out in their investor prospectus. Very, very frustrating that one. So are we to uh, have this form of trickle-down housing supply? That's what we're led to believe. We rezone the land. Developers 
can then build us enough houses so that it puts pressure on prices to fall. Yeah, there are a couple of issues that are just so simple, it's surprising. I haven't really put this together before. It's uh, it's sad but true. I've, I've mentioned it in passing, but uh, this whole, it really is trickle-down housing, another form of trickle-down economics, and we haven't called it as that. You've heard me make the statement in the past that expecting developers to keep building in order to reduce housing prices is a pure fantasy. It just doesn't make economic sense. Why would they keep building? And because we don't have good enough information flows, that meme still prevails in the world of policy fraud. So that's why we were so happy to have Dr. Cameron Murray release uh, the unspoken alternatives to expensive housing recently. I'm going to come back to that. But the second point to this argument on why developers, why trickle-down housing supply won't work is due to the banking industry. We have talked before about margin calls. We have talked before about the US example where land prices peaked at the end of 2005, started falling the start of 2006. Some 30-odd months later, Lehman Brothers exploded and everyone said, oh, it was all to do with bank credits, all to do with risky loans. Well, what about the fact that land prices had fallen for so long, forcing so many small and medium-sized banks to write down their books? So that then led to less credit being offered. And the jury is still out whether that had a bigger effect on liquidity rather than all of these subprime loans with their dodgy junk bond type uh, ratings falling foul at a similar time. It's obviously a combination of the two, but uh, I'm hoping someone out there is going to do their PhD on that and get stuck into it in America. Come on, you yanks, get onto it. So when we consider trickle-down housing supply, I'll remind you of the headline figures from the unspoken alternatives to expensive housing. The best modelling by the Grattan Institute, who, like so many groups, even within the reform sector, such as our friends at Macro Business, they still believe this trickle-down housing supply story is going to work. And uh, Brendan Coates at Grattan is saying, look, if we built 50,000 more homes a year, we could reduce prices by 10% over a decade. And Cameron pointed out that that would require dedicating the entire workforce from the ACT or the Gold Coast to build those homes. The better alternative is to tax away the naturally rising value of land. And the Canberra Land Rent Initiative shows us that. So there you have it, four times more effective than the supply-side diversion, or let's go even five times if we have uh, the Community Land Trust model up and running in Australia. So as these house prices continue, uh, you know, I hope you've enjoyed the last four or five, last five or six weeks. I've had some heavy hitters on. Alana Hartsock, Michael Hudson last week, incredible. We had Mason Gaffney, we had Cameron Murray, 
and Fred Harrison. And uh, for those who aren't podcasters, I just want to play uh, a few minutes here of discussing with Fred Harrison because as you may remember, he has the record for picking these peaks and troughs in terms of this 18-year property cycle. As we go through the next modest recession, governments will just uh, continue to pump out some money uh, and keep things stable. It's when the next big event occurs in 2026, which will be so fundamentally big that uh, the challenge occurs. And the answer to your question in relation to that outcome is they haven't got any tools to deal with it. It will be an utter catastrophe. It will no longer be the banks being too big to fail. It will be the governments too big to fail. But who comes to the rescue of, of governments that are too big to fail? Nobody. There is no way to save governments. So that's, that is the, the terrible scenario. Something like 10 years from now, people will be sitting back and thinking, that's it. It's the end game. There are no tools. There's no quantitative easing, uh, no buying back people's debts, no cancellation of debts that's actually going to save the system. So that is the terrible prospect we fe uh, face. And somebody like you, Carl, had better start thinking ab about a rational plan for dealing with it so that actually reason can prevail rather than the um, alternatives, which are too terrible to think about. <laughs> Fred, well, uh, okay, let's play that sport then because there's four or five tools that are coming through that could easily, could easily, well, that should be on any meaningful reform agenda in 2026-27. Number one is, uh, of course, implementing a monopoly rent tax on all forms of monopoly. Number two is uh, the clean slate, dropping all debts. Number three is public banking and local currencies, encouraging those into play. Uh, four would be MMT, with the governments reclaiming control of the money supply and ensuring that uh, uh, they can, um, they, they're the ones who are, are spending the money and engaging in things like the people's quantitative easing. Uh, probably five is uh, outlawing uh, Standard and Poor's and Moody's. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the local currency story, that's a good quick one governments can get into play if they've got the land story correct. But it really worries me in this last decade how quickly the uh, MMT movement, modern monetary theory and the positive money groups have grown. It's just so easy, so trendy to bash the banks, to bash uh, the miracle of compound interest, but uh, a little more challenging to talk about the combination of land and tax reform. Yes, and so that's the challenge. What we have to do is create a new narrative of the kind that people find utterly plausible so that in the face of a catastrophe, people don't panic. That's the big danger, that uh, there is panic and then uh, people resort basically to violence in one form or another. So the preparation in the run-up to a terrible outcome uh, is um, 
the um, elucidation of a convincing holistic transformation of the kind where there are enough reasonable social leaders, civic and political and spiritual, who can come together to say, look, this terrible outcome is going to happen, but we've got the uh, strategy for dealing with it in place. We know what to do. This is what it is. We believe people will be able to respond to it with these several reforms that you've been referring to. Uh, so we will be able to cope. Now, as is often the case, I wish I'd spent a little bit more time talking to Fred about his belief that the leading indicator for economic recession is land turnover, the turnover of real estate, particularly vacant land sites or development sites. Now, uh, our colleague, Dr. Gavin Putlin wrote an incredibly detailed report following the GFC called From the Subprime to the Terrigenous. And in it, he analysed 40 nations and the order of uh, uh, recession and what triggered it. And in 31 of those situations, the domestic property bubble was the leading indicator for recession in that nation. And before property prices fell, the leading indicator was the land turnover. And the key point there, according to Dr. Putlin, was a downturn in the property market, especially in turnover, sales of properties, is a leading indicator of recession with a lead time of up to nine quarters for turnover or up to eight quarters for values. He went on to say a fall in turnover is a leading indicator of a fall in prices, usually one to two quarters away. He also found recessions are mostly homegrown. And so here in Australia, we have had the land turnover data points are very, very interesting. We are right on the precipice of something, and this really inspired me to, to feature housing on the show today. So according to Leith Van Onselen at macrobusiness.com.au, the five city sales volumes that he's coordinated from CoreLogic shows that since the most recent peak in terms of property turnover or sales volumes is uh, late 2015. We had a big fall all through 2015 down into mid-2016. So there's at least five quarters there. There was a slight moderation between mid-2016 and mid-2017. And then again, property turnover is falling quite dramatically. We've had another four quarters there, at least maybe five quarters of falling property turnover. And the volumes have fallen from 340,000 annual sales a year to now down to about 250,000 sales a year. So I would not be going, uh, I would not be training to be a real estate agent at the moment. There will be lots of cutbacks going on in that industry. And with Australia's economic model focused on big 
housing prices, read land prices, big debts resultant from that, and big immigration demanding big infrastructure projects. Well, this puts our entire Australian economy uh, on the ropes. And it's about once every eight years that this comes to pass. Fred Harrison in that clip I just played talked about this mid-cycle correction not being so big. It's the, the next one in 2026 is going to be the one that wipes out the world economy, he reckons. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not so certain because Australia largely missed out on the GFC. Interest rates are at record lows. The government really can't cut them too much further to help people who are struggling under the weight of these high land prices. Household debts are uh, record levels. Governments are uh, pump priming the economy with these big infrastructure projects though. So perhaps that is going to pull us through and we will have, as Harrison suggests, a light correction until we uh, boom through to 2026 with uh, 30, 40 year mortgages becoming uh, a regular norm. So are we halfway towards recession? Our GDP figures are still looking good. 0.9% for the last quarter alone. Unemployment uh, is still looking healthy. Underemployment's even looking good. Bad debts haven't really uh, hit the Richter scale. No one's really complaining about them yet. So not too bad there. So perhaps there's further to go. According to the property turnover indicators there, we're probably still another year away from recession, which fits into what we have been saying that there would be a late 2019, early 2020 correction. So there you go, people. I hope uh, you found that useful. I hope you can add some of those tools to your debates at your next barbecue skirmish on uh, the state of housing prices. But remember just how much better off we'd be with cheaper housing Take the Canberra land rent example. A thousand households are saving $9,000 each a year. That's $9 million that's not going to the banks, not going to the 1%, but being spent into the local economy. That sounds like resilience to me. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll let this one fly, guys. Uh, for anyone still listening, yeah. I think uh, I'm going to wrap the weekly show up at the end of this year. December 19 is going to be my last weekly show. I'm trying to decide whether I go to fortnightly or monthly shows from here on in. I need more time to write these reports, to make videos, to lobby MPs. Finally, lots of meetings coming up. An interesting visit to Canberra in the next couple of weeks. All right. Check the show notes at earthsharing.org.au and our sister website at prosper.org.au.